Thank you all for coming this evening and for giving me the opportunity to share some thoughts with you about Kata Kalwitz, an artist that I have, as Alexa mentioned, long admired. Um, an artist, a major 20th century artist who is recognized as a real game changer, a woman artist in a field dominated by men who broke down many barriers while steadfastly focusing her art on the experiences of women and the working class. The AGO, as Alexa has mentioned, is very fortunate to own an incredibly large collection of Kollwitz's work. It's one of the largest collections outside Germany. In 2015, the generous gift of over 170 prints, drawings, and sculptures from Dr. Brian McCrindle made the AGO a center for the study of Kollwitz's work. And Dr. McCrindle is here this evening, so I would like to personally thank him. See, we have a lot of fans, Colwitz fans. <laughs> this collection um, allows us to have a comprehensive overview of the artist's work um, over her whole 50-year career. Some highlights include 18 drawings, complete sets of her four major print series, and an important group of eight sculptures. As you probably know, or you may know, Colwitz was devoted to drawing, printmaking, and sculpture but her legacy is primarily as a printmaker. And through her prints, she was able to fulfill her goal, which was to share her art, her images, with a broad audience. So fortunately, the AGO is able, to, in some small way, to honor her desire that many people would have the opportunity to see her art and experience it. To celebrate the arrival of the gift, from Dr. McCrindle, the AGO has committed to showing selections of Kollwitz's work for over a year in our print and drawing galleries. Each exhibition looks at key aspects of her work, and currently um, we have the second exhibition in this series um, on view, which is focused on her commitment to social commentary and her humanitarian issues um, that she was very concerned about. Uh, features two, this, this exhibition also features two of her most important print series her large-scale virtuoso etchings for the Peasants' War, and the iconic woodcut series called War, which was made in response to her experience during World War I. The talk this evening, as you can see, is called Kate Kollwitz Facing the Truth, and this was chosen partly, as you might have guessed, because it reflects the artist's obsession with portraying her own face. we look closely at her art, we might ask, why? Why did she make so many self-portraits? I'm going to show you just a few examples here, tip of the iceberg. So this is in 1893, when she was about 26 years old. And we have a 1906 etching, 1910 etching, 1919, 19, or sorry, that's a lithograph, and a 1922 woodcut. And then in 1934, when she was in her late 60s. So you can see they um, span her whole career. She made over 120 self-portraits. They, they appear in all of her different media, um, at both ends of her career, and um, at many critical stages in between. So I think it's fair to say that Colwitz was a woman of strong convictions, and deep compassion for others, but she was also someone who had many internal struggles, and self-examination and inward looking are at the very core of her art. 
This becomes apparent in her many self-portraits, which go far beyond being a mere record of her physical appearance. And many other works, not titled self-portrait, are also clearly images of Colwitz and probably should be titled self-portraits. Seated woman with a propped up hand is clearly her. And still others, such as this woman in a homeless shelter, comforting her two young children, blur the lines between what is and what is not a self-portrait, as the artist appears to slip into other roles and the working woman take on generalized facial features resembling the artist herself. I've come to feel that self-portraiture is at the very center of her art practice. This is one of her earliest and one of her late self-portraits. Her first known self-portraits are from her student days when she attended art schools for women in Berlin from 1886 to 87 and then in Munich from 1888 to 1890. Uh, women were not allowed to uh, attend the main Prussian Academy of Art in Berlin, um, so she attended these schools for young women. This small pen and ink drawing um, on the left was made at the time uh, that she was a student, and it's very early. Obviously, I, it's, I said it's her very first self-portrait. She made a number of these at this time. And it's the only self-portrait um, that is still um, extant or uh, that we still know about where she's smiling. And then one of her last self-portraits, this 1938 charcoal drawing, it's obvious in the intervening 40 or so years that many life experiences and tragedies um, are reflected in how she portrays herself. And in this poignant image, Colwitz is an elderly woman. She's bowed over with care, and she's looking older, I think, than her 71 years. Colwitz's self-portrayals stake her place in the long tradition of self-portraiture, dating back to such luminaries as Albrecht Dürer, her German forebear, um, who was a Renaissance artist, and she's also frequently been linked to Rembrandt, another trailblazing printmaker who repeatedly portrayed his own face. Kollwitz was not the only artist of her generation to have an obsession with portraying herself. Paula Modersen Becker, Edvard Munch, and Max Beckman, to name a few, chose self-portraiture as a visual exploration of their own states of mind as well as a commentary on the state of the world around them. And in the course of doing so, they frequently took on other roles or identities. Until the early 20th century, there was a notable lack of recognition for women's self-portraiture, or women's self-representations in the history of self-portraiture. The stereotype of the artist was male, and so too was the self-portrait. Over time, self-portraiture became a means for a woman to establish her status as an artist and claim her place alongside male contemporaries. And printed self-portraits provided a special opportunity for self-promotion. For a printmaker like Colwitz, her etchings, lithographs, and woodcuts were a means to advertise her work. Uh, because in prints, which are multiples, the artist's face, as well as her technical skill, would be on display and clearly identify or sign her work for a large audience. And this is kind of like brand recognition today. They'd see her face, they'd see her technique, and they'd recognize her work. And we've already noted that Colwitz had a strong desire for a wide public to see her work at affordable prices. I'm just showing you the front cover of a fairly recent publication of her diaries, which were edited by her granddaughter, Yuta. 
This was first published in 1989, and a new edition um, that I'm showing you here is 2012. It's about 1,000 pages of very small print in German. Um, but by the later 19th century, the upsurge of interest in self-portraiture coincided with a preoccupation with autobiography of various kinds. Kolwitz's work, both visual and written, should be seen in the context of this larger desire to probe one's individual psyche and the fascination with self-analysis and self-interrogation. Kolwitz's autobiographical writings, her diaries and letters, together with her self-portraits, are complementary expressions. One represents the verbal and the other the visual debates that she carried on with herself. The artist saw her self-portraits as visual conversations. She used both her diaries and her self-portraits to ground herself when she was feeling depressed or confused about the direction of her art. They were also used as vehicles to express her mental or emotional state and to explore and project different personas. Kolwitz's self-portrait should also be viewed in the context of her early years, growing up in the city of Konigsberg in East Prussia, her religious background, and the habit of constant self-examination this upbringing may have ingrained in her. Why she felt an obligation to be grounded in her beliefs and the sense of responsibility that this knowledge produced. In 1909, she completed her first public sculpture. I'm showing you here on the right. She actually worked on over 40 sculptural projects, and this is an area of her work that has been understudied and undervalued until recently, when there has been um, a wonderful exhibition and catalog raisonné of her sculpture produced in, in um, Cologne. Um, so her first sculpture in 1909 was a portrait of her maternal grandfather, Julius Rupp. Uh, his dates are 1809 to 1884. And this appeared on a memorial stone which was located outside his home in Konigsberg with a quote. So if I translate this for you, it says, He who does not live according to the truth that he confesses is the most dangerous enemy of truth itself. Um, this memorial stone was actually destroyed. So this is a very, this is an old photograph of it. But there is a replica now uh, that was replacing it, and it can still be seen today um, in the city of Konigsberg, but it's now called Kaliningrad, and it's part of Russia, uh, the city where she was born. Julius Rupp was the founder of a breakaway Lutheran free church, and as well as believing in egalitarianism and rejecting a class system within the church and society, Rupp believed in the separation of church and state. His socialist convictions led to time in prison in 1851, so he was quite radical. showing you two photos of Colwitz now as a girl and as a young woman. Socialist ideals were also promoted in Colwitz's family by her father, Carl Schmidt, and I should mention that her, her maiden name was Schmidt. Um, Carl Schmidt, who took over the direction of the church from his father-in-law, and who, along with her brother Conrad and her future husband, Carl Colwitz, were all members of the German Social Democratic Party. Her upbringing was, in this way, unconventional, but also middle class and cultured, and therefore very different from the lives of the poor working class women in Berlin that she would eventually live among for over 50 years. This foundation was critical to Kalwitz in developing her ability to listen empathetically and internalize the cares of others. Her son Hans reflected that, 
All her life, she was never able to observe the miseries of others without taking them into herself. That was the reason people told her their troubles. In the first six years of her recorded drawings and etchings, during her student years and very early career from 1888 to 1893, approximately half the works are self-portraits and they occasionally fill whole sheets. The prevalence of such studies during this early period suggests that she used herself as a convenient and inexpensive model to train her eye. She explored different facial expressions, studied light and shade, experimented, with a range of pen and ink and wash techniques and tested various etching processes. She also invented various personas, ranging from, um, on the right, the artist as a fierce outsider with disheveled hair in this gestural drawing of around 1889 to 91, to the serious professional artist at work of 1893 using a descriptive linear technique of etching. The artist at work pose appears frequently in the history of self-portraiture. You often see images of artists looking up from their work and looking you in the eye. But it's only used occasionally by, by Colwitz, um, as in this etching of 1893, which is a very carefully constructed image um, where she represents herself as a serious young artist pausing and momentarily looking up from her task. Her debt to Rembrandt is particularly evident in the composition and the dramatic lighting effects. In 1891, she had married uh, Carl Kolwitz, who was a medical doctor, and he set up his practice in a working class neighborhood on the east side of Berlin, where they would live for the next 50 years, and where Katie, on a daily basis, encountered women living under incredible hardship that would be um, one of her primary subjects. So this portrait of her on the left, again, is set in the Berlin apartment. She appears to be shown seated at the kitchen table where she often worked in the evening, possibly while her one-year-old son Hans was already asleep. At the same time that she was working on that self-portrait, she was beginning to work on what would become her first successful print series, A Weaver's Revolt, in six prints, three lithographs and three etchings. A Weaver's Revolt was inspired by attending a performance of Gerhard Hauptmann's controversial new play called The Weavers in 1893. And like Hauptmann, Colwitz based her images loosely on, that, on a historical event, um, and that was a notorious revolt of Silesian hand weavers against oppressive factory owners that happened in 1844. The weavers' prints focus on women responding to oppression, poverty, and death, and provide a sort of catalog of, our, of her most persistent themes that would reappear over the course of her career. The series brought together themes of social commentary and psychological drama with a bold approach to printmaking. And this series caused a sensation when it was exhibited at the Great Berlin Art Exhibition, where it was awarded a gold medal. Unfortunately, this award was vetoed by Kaiser Wilhelm II because Kalwitz was a woman, and gold medals belonged on the chest of deserving men. But this actually gained her a lot of um, notoriety and fame, so that wasn't such a bad thing in the end. Um, in the first image, Need, the first plate in the series, the woman at the cradle of the dying child looks a little like Colwitz and the baby a little like her young son Hans. In the next image of death, 
Her son Hans was used as the model for the child. The women that appear in the weaver's images all look fairly similar in dress, physique, and facial features. Variations and like gentle caricatures of Katie Colwitz herself. I would argue that although it becomes more obvious in her later work, um, in her images of working class women, even at this early stage, she begins to directly project herself into her work. In the first decade of the 20th century, Colwitz completed a number of prints and drawings of single, weary, working-class women whose poses and facial expressions are related to her self-portraits. Most are shown looking down and inward, seeking strength from within. Comments that she made, such as, all my works are distillations of my life and extracts of my life, are very telling. She appears to slip into other roles, transferring what she learned while looking in the mirror to the serious and sorrowful, sorrowful expressions of the hurting women that she encountered. And in this way, she invents archetypal figures that represent the individual suffering women in Berlin while alluding to the universal suffering of women across time and place. In 1903, perhaps her most famous and arguably most disturbing print began with a self-portrait. The image was actually based on several drawings and lithographs of her with her younger son, Peter. And when they were young, Colwitz's sons, Peter and Hans, were frequent models for her preparatory drawings, as Colwitz be often began the creative process by making studies of herself and her sons, evolving the image from self to other in the final print. She recalls, when I made the etching, woman and dead child, I drew myself in the mirror, holding the seven-year-old Peter on my arm. I groaned because of the strenuous position. With his small child's voice, he said consolingly, stay calm, mother, it will be very beautiful. So that might have been when she was making the drawing in the upper left, but she made many more drawings related to this. When her friend, Beata Bonus Jeep, came across this print unexpectedly, unexpectedly in an exhibition in Dresden, she was completely taken aback. And she described it as a mother, naked and somewhat like an animal, who tries to swallow up with her eyes, lips, and breath the vanished life that once belonged in her womb. So this image is a, became a potent symbol of maternal grief and loss. But it's hard to understand what possessed Colwitz to create such a harrowing image, especially as this predates the 1914 death of her own son, Peter. It may still be based on her own experiences as a mother, however, as her older son, Hans, was extremely ill in 1902 and had a severe, severe case of diphtheria. But it may also reflect her first-hand knowledge of the high infant and child mortality rate among the families she encountered every day in her husband's medical practice. During the same period, the first decade of the 20th century, Colwitz was building her career as a successful artist. She visited Paris in 1901 and 1904 and Rome in 1907. She joined the progressive artist group, the Berliner Succession. She saw the publication of her first catalog of her prints and taught at the Berlin Women's Art Union, where she had previously been a student. And she was also completing work on her second great series, Peasant's War. Colwitz again took up the theme of worker revolt in this ambitious print series published in 1908. 
The Peasants' War was inspired by her reading of a famous 16th century German peasant uprising against oppressive landlords. The seven large plates of the Peasants' War are technical tours de force, prepared using a wide range of etching processes. The imagery is also radical and disturbing in content. The experience of women is central, and as in the Weaver's Revolt, they and their menfolk are the victims of violent oppression. But unlike the earlier series where women participate in the revolt, here they take the lead in the revolution. In Sharpening the Scythe, which began again as a self-portrait drawing, but evolved into an intense image of a peasant woman preparing for battle. Her face is partially obscured by her hand, which grips the scythe, a large bladed tool used to harvest wheat. Here it becomes the woman's weapon and a symbol associated with death um, and the grim reaper since the 1300s. In Outbreak, which is plate five in the series, the woman in the foreground represents uh, someone, an historical figure named Black Anna, the leader of the, 15, the 1524 uprising. With raised arms, she incites the peasants to riot. By positioning Anna in front of the crowd with her back to the viewer, Colwitz expresses her own identification with this strong, powerful revolutionary. She once wrote that her childhood and youthful dream was revolution and barricades. However, she soon moved away from narrative presentations of this kind, shifting from what she called the anecdotal, um, the storytelling aspect of her work, the descriptive uh, aspect, and also uh, looking at sort of literature and historical events. And she began to focus more on what she called the essentials. So subjects related to her own lived experience and to more simplified and less detailed forms of expression. And a major turning point um, in this change in her work, um, both her art and her life, was World War I, and particularly the death of her son Peter in 1914. During and following World War I, the subject matter and the way the artist expressed it was informed by what she would call those unspeakably difficult years from 1914 to 1918. Using etching less and less, she chose the gestural technique of lithography more and eventually the simpler technique of woodcut in an attempt to find the best form for this difficult content. She said that she, she sought to extract the emotional content out of everything, to let things work upon me and then give them outward form. In the frontal lithograph of 1915, her blank stare suggests looking inward. The work takes on heightened significance as one of only uh, one or two, sorry, two or three. She only made two or three self-portraits um, during this period uh, from October 1914 when her 18-year-old son Peter died at the front in the early weeks of World War I, and to the end of the war in 1918. So this is one of the few self-portraits of that period. And her dazed, vacant look now suggests the traumatized mental state that she was in. Um, and the sense of vulnerability, I think, is enhanced by the medium tones and granular quality of the lithographic crayon and the way the head is lit from one side and emerges from soft shadows on the left. In many self-portraits, she looks directly into the mirror and straight at the viewer in confrontational, commanding representations of herself. Her hieratic presence takes on an iconic quality and creates the weightiness of a moment fixed forever in time. 
A few years later, in the 1920s, the early 1920s, Colwitz made three self-portraits in woodcut at the same time that she was completing her major woodcut print series, War. In the frontal-facing woodcut on the right, the face alone with staring black eyes fills the sheet and takes on a stark and terrifying mask-like quality. After Peter's death, she struggled to make sense of the tragedy and worked on a number of projects as she sought to commemorate her son's memory. One outcome of the struggle was the war series from 1921 to 22 of seven black and white woodcuts. This is actually on view in the exhibition upstairs. She said she hoped that the woodcuts would travel throughout the entire world to tell all human beings what we have endured throughout these unspeakably difficult years. She felt the woodcut technique with its poster-like simplicity would express the brutal starkness of the war experience. I'm showing you two of the sheets, a poignant image of a pregnant widow and a group of mothers in which a band of desperate yet determined mothers create a protective wall around their young children. The theme of motherhood and mothers banding together was one that the artists often returned to. We see here the civilian experience in the aftermath of war. Postures and hand gestures indicate mourning and convey communal grief of women following the loss of husbands and sons. The mothers huddle together for support, suggesting that strength and hope can be found in women in community. Colwitz brings together three of her overarching and often repeated themes, motherhood, response to death, here specifically um, through the violence of war, and self-portraiture. As one of Colwitz's most striking self-portraits appears in this lithograph, in a, this lithograph and I suspect you've already found it. Um, show you a couple of photographs here of Colwitz with her, her sons and then her two sons on their own. Um, this is the only photograph I've ever seen of her with her two sons, so there just aren't very many family photographs. We see that she has inserted her own face and those of her two sons into this image, right in the center of the mother's group. It's actually as her sons would have looked more than 10 years earlier. And obviously her son Peter was already dead. On February 6, 1919, she wrote in her diary, I worked on the mothers. In the past few days, the conception of it has been stirring in me. I have drawn the mother who embraces both her children. It's me with my own flesh and blood children, my Hans and little Peter, and I've been able to do it very well. Since medieval times, artists have included self-portraits in their narrative works, taking on a role to the witness, as a witness to an event, and sometimes becoming active participants in the action, thereby memorializing themselves and making the story more vivid and relevant. The insertion of herself and her sons is a particularly poignant addition, and because her eyes are closed and she clasps the boys close to her body, she makes it clear that her pain is intense, and her grief, although communal, is private and personal. So we've seen a few ways that self-portraiture plays an integral role in Colwitz's work overall. I'd like to look back at a few of her actual direct self-portraits and see that she also mastered a full range of conventional poses and, uh, that appear throughout the history of portraiture. We looked earlier at some of her full frontal self-portraits to see what a commanding presence they have. 
but she created a very different effect when she showed herself in another pose favored by portraitists. And this is the sort of side sideward glance, turning towards her audience. Here the artist may be glancing up and briefly engaging with the viewer or with her reflection in the mirror before returning to her task. And I think particularly in the lithograph, we see that her expression is informal, animated, and fleeting. The moment captured is intimate, suggesting a casual encounter between the artist and the viewer. Then in her occasional profile uh, pose self-portraits, the artist gazes into a space outside the picture plane. There is no eye contact and no interaction between the artist and the viewer, and the viewer has no knowledge of the object of the artist's gaze. Since we have no idea what the artist is seeing or thinking, this distancing makes the artist seem remote and inaccessible. Looking beyond this uh, range of traditional poses that she had mastered, she also made some distinctive new contributions to this genre. She did this by focusing on key elements, specifically the expression in her eyes, dark pools, closed, glazed over, or staring intently, and the placement of her hand, her hand to her head. This hand is either used to prop up her chin, cover her brow, or rest on one side of her face in a range of self-portraits. Eyes have been called the mirrors of the soul, and the attention that Colwitz pays to the eyes alludes to the special insight of the artist, implying that she is a seer or a visionary. When Colwitz puts her hand to her forehead and shades her eyes, she creates a mystery, similar to the one created by Rembrandt when he shades his eyes with the brim of his hat in his self-portraits, casting his eyes into mysterious darkness. I think this is one of her most compelling self-portraits. It's an etching of 1910, which may reflect the struggle that she, was, um, she records in her diary in the spring of that year when she says that she's having a sort of creative crisis and not being productive. Although it is very small, and you wouldn't know it seeing it here, it's only about six inches square. It achieves monumentality through the direct frontal pose, the oversized hand shading the eyes, the deeply bitten, vigorous etching lines, and the strong black and white contrasts. The placement of the artist's hand at her head draws attention to her contemplative, melancholic state of mind. This pose can be traced to Albrecht Dürer's engraving Melancholia of 1514. This image became a familiar trope of the brooding artist, poet, or seer in the following centuries and was in common currency among artists by Colwitz's time. Dürer's rep representation of a strong contemplative woman, the embodiment of introspection, imagination, and creative genius, must have particularly appealed to Colwitz. And versions of this melancholic pose became a recognizable trademark of her own work. She often took up th this posture herself, according to her family and friends, but, and it's apparent in many contemporary photographs. As you may have observed about Colwitz's uh, self-portrait, she also avoids idealization of any kind. She consistently reduces or eliminates vestiges of, of softness or prettiness, which are visible in uh, photographs of her of, at the same time. And she often portrays herself as a strong androgynous figure. Her hair is usually pulled back close to her head. Her hands appear oversized, which adds to their expressive potential. 
They're not typical women's, women's hands, but are more likely to have belonged to a man who was perhaps a manual laborer. And they may symbolize the hard work involved in making and doing as an artist. She noted um, at one point in her diary that a tinge of masculinity within me helped me in my work, suggesting that this was needed to compete in a male-dominated art world. Her choice of subject matter generally, along with her expressive technique, were repeatedly criticized or praised by reviewers in her own day as being overly masculine or as good as a man's. Her supporter, Max Lairs, wrote, there is an austere masculine spirit in these prints that far outstrips all that we are otherwise unfortunately used to finding in women's work. And perhaps because of its larger-than-life size, Colwitt's only sculptural self-portrait has a powerful and imposing presence, a plainness and strength, which could also be identified as masculine. Sculptures are rare in the history of self-portraiture, possibly because of the difficulty of producing your own likeness in three dimensions. Colwitz actually found this, the task of making this incredibly frustrating. She abandoned the project several times, but finally persevered. This was made during the 1920s, which was a time of artistic recognition for the artist. She became the first woman instructor at the Prussian Art Academy. If you remember, that was the institution that didn't allow uh, women students, but it now was accepting women students, and she was the first instru a woman instructor. By 1928, she was appointed the head of the printmaking studio there. And in the 1920s, she was working on a number of sculptural projects. So she began modeling this self-portrait in 1926, when she was in her late 50s, and finished it in 1936, at the age of 69. One day, its existence in her studio, though yet unfinished, proved fortuitous um, as an inspiration for the face of, of one of her other great sculptures, the mother in The Grieving Parents, which was her big memorial for her son, Peter. So this is the father and the mother, the, um, the grieving parents. When the two large stone sculptures of the parents were unveiled in the German military cemetery in Belgium, where Peter was buried, Kitta and Karl Kollwitz made the pilgrimage to Belgium. She records this moment in her diary on August 14, 1932. I stood in front of the woman, saw her, my own face, cried, and stroked her cheeks. Her most monumental and profoundly moving work, this granite self-portrait, accompanied by the sculpture modeled after her husband, Carl, represents for Colwitz the climax of her journey to come to terms with Peter's death and a place where she could finally find peace. Colwitz also broadened the traditional definition of the self-portrait in other sculptures related to memorial or death themes, such as this relief called the Lamentation, made in response to the demise of her friend, the artist Ernst Barlock, in 1938. She said the work was intended to represent her suffering and that she made it under the impression of Barlock's death and the terrible injustice he had suffered. The sculpture is reduced to her own recognizable, mournful face, cradled and supported by two large hands. Her eyes are closed in a state of meditation and sorrow. An expression of overwhelming grief, the hand covering the mouth may also allude to Barlock's persecution under the Nazis. The purpose here is commemorative, to memorialize a loved one 
However, by using her own face, she also memorializes herself. By the mid-1930s, Kollwitz complained of feeling alone, abandoned by colleagues, as the Nazis forced her to leave her teaching position and her studio at the Prussian Academy of Art and removed her art from exhibitions. This dark time is reflected in this extremely imposing frontal lithograph of 1934. The eyes are again deep pools of blackness. Her aging face is cropped into an extreme close-up, so there is no escape from the relentless stare of the artist, for herself or for the viewer. The tip of a finger touches her brow, and her expression is weary yet wise. And again in the late lithograph series, Death, 1934, she represents versions of herself in almost every one of the eight prints, but specifically in this last image, called to death. She shows a woman with her own facial features, resigned to death and greeting him as a friend. Here she comments on the brevity of life while emphasizing that as one grows old, death is to be expected and should be met with dignity. In 1942, Colwitz produced one of her last prints. The lithograph seed for the planting should not be ground. Her final declarative anti-war statement underlining her conviction that the lives of the young are to be preserved at all costs. She turned to her favorite poet Goethe for inspiration, creating this image, which ironically appeared just a few months before the death of her grandson in World War II. His name was also Peter. In this lithograph, a strong woman, again who looks like her, defiantly shelters three young boys under her cloak and the wings of her outstretched arms. Again, personal experience leads to familiar themes, including motherhood, sacrifice, and protection, as she creates a deceptively simple, yet ultimately, ultimately iconic image. This image confirms once again that throughout her career, Self-examination and self-reflection are clearly at the very center of Colwitz's art. Working within the genre of self-portraiture, she mastered and pushed against the boundaries and conventions, crafting complex works that blur the lines between what is and what is not a self-portrait. By understanding even a little about how she did this, we can begin to grasp why her art had a powerful impact in her own day and continues to have a profound resonance in ours. Thank you. <laughs> exactly 45 minutes. <laughs> Question? When is the catalog coming? Thank you, Jane. Um, on December 3rd, we hope to have a catalog in the bookstore. So it's almost here. Just it's going to print right now. Yeah. Finally. Any other questions? Did she do her own printing? Um, she did have an etching press, um, a small etching press, but most of her printing was done by sort of master printer, um, a man named Richter, Emil Richter, and then um, You'll often find on her prints a small signature in the lower left corner. Um, it says O. Felsing, and that was the master printer that worked with Richter. So she, but she oversaw that process. Yeah. So she didn't. She didn't print her own lithographs, and she did print some etchings, but mostly they were done 
in sort of additions? Yeah. This is a really naive question, but I am genuinely curious. What is your favorite piece by her and why? First, my favorite piece by her? Yeah. Well, I would have to say that Mothers of 1919, um, the lithograph, because it brings together sort of, you know, it's like a consummate image that brings together all of these overarching themes in her work, the motherhood, the death, and the self-portrait all in one. And it, I find it incredibly moving and um, because I was working on self-portraits and that one just sort of goes beyond, you know, some of her other individual self-portraits. So I just really like that one. And I think it, the technique is great too. Uh, some people prefer woodcuts or her etchings, but she was, you know, she, she liked the lithography technique because it was sort of simpler and more gestural, I guess. I hope I didn't uh, miss this at the beginning. Um, as a young, can you talk about her education, whether formal or informal, as a young girl? Okay, as a young girl, um, she, she didn't have um, a lot of formal education, but she did grew, grow up in this very cultured um, environment of her, you know, her home. They were very um, well-read. There were lots of books available to her. Um, her father, for example, had, you know, illustrated books like of Hogarth prints and things like that that would have inspired her. Um, so she, you know, she was extremely um, cognizant of what was happening, you know, in France and read, you know, Emile Zola and Charles Dickens and um, these are some of the things that inspired some of her early works. So she didn't have a lot of formal education, but her first real education, I think, was um, just individually with an engraver who worked, you know, as far as her art education in Konigsberg, and then at these women's art schools, where she did have some good instructors who advised her to uh, draw. They could see that she had an incredible ability with drawing, and, uh, and then with printmaking. And one of her inspirations for the printmaking also was a man named Max Klinger, the artist Max Klinger, you may be familiar with his work. Thank you for the talk. Um, can you please tell me uh, how her work resonated with post-war uh, German artists and European artists, uh, both from a pacifist perspective and also from a feminist perspective? Okay, did everybody hear that question? Saying how was her work sort of received after the, the, uh, the Second World War or the First World War? After her death, after her death. Yeah, well, it's gone in and out of fashion, um, depending on what the taste, how tastes change in the art world. Um, so, you know, I think it's, um, she's had a kind of a revival more recently when there's more kind of um, protest art being created and, um, you know, political messages in art and so on are quite, you know, relevant, like, quite available today or, or popular today. Um, she, um, I, she never really went out of, out of favor in the popular conscience because, I mean, there were streets named after her, parks named after her, there's two museums in Germany named after her, so she never really went into obscurity at any point. She was always, um, you know, popular among a general audience. But she, when, you know, when, as tastes change in the art world or as, or as things change, she kind of, she did go in and out of favor. But I would think that she's had quite a revival just recently. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, okay. 
Um, hello. You mentioned that she was oppressed oh. by the Nazis. Um, she was left wing. I gather her husband also was, and that's mm -hmm. the reason he worked among the poor. Was her husband Jewish? No. 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 And so were they oppressed because of their left wing politics solely or for other reasons? Um, I think it was probably more their sort of political outlook, look, which was kind of anti-war and anti, you know, authoritarian. And the, the art that she produced wasn't the kind of art that the Nazis wanted to promote. That was part of it. Um, her husband, they, not, they weren't Jewish, but her sister was married to a Jewish man. So she had many Jewish friends. But I don't think it had anything to do with that. I think it was more that her art was kind of categorized along with all the other kind of degenerate art. She wasn't actually called degenerate, but I mean, and she did also have some um, leanings towards um, or some sympathies with, with Russia, and that wasn't particularly popular. <laughs> um, so she, apparently she was actually threatened by the Gestapo uh, that she would be sent to a concentration camp if she didn't sort of pull back on some of that. So it was, it was, it was definitely a persecution, maybe not quite as harsh as some other people like Barlach and, and many others, but uh, she decided not to leave because she was so um, you know, established there and her family was there and they didn't leave. But she did evacuate to um, outside of... Berlin. Uh, this is actually in the Second World War now. Yeah. So she evacuated in, in 1943 and um, died in a place called Moritzburg near Dresden um, in April, just be, a few weeks before the, the Second World War ended. So, and she hoped for, longed for peace, but she didn't get to, to see the, the end of the war. Mm. Um, to what extent do her diaries cover her art uh, versus her personal life, if you've read a thousand pages? I've tried. Well, <laughs> a lot of Google Translate. Uh, <laughs> no, um, I have waded through quite a bit of it, but um, yes, it, it's both. She, she talks about her, what's happening in daily. I mean, it's really um, interesting reading because I think she's a very intelligent woman and she is also, I think, quite unpretentious. She, I mean, she was very self-aware, not just, you know, self-examining, uh, but she did have these kind of debates about her art, and it's really, you know, really interesting reading. But it includes, um, it includes both what's happening on a daily basis and who came over and had dinner and they talked about Freud or, you know, things like that, um, as well as... Um, you know, just how frustrated she is with whatever she's working on at the time and how somebody, some other artist who she's just seen an exhibition of has found their way and I haven't found my way and, you know, things like this, which, you know, is, it's really interesting. And she says some really profound things about her art, too, that get quoted a lot in the literature. Part two of that, which you opened up um, through your answer, is... Um, 
does she mention which uh, artists she admired, more um, contemporary artists at the same time as her? Or? Um, yeah, she does. She, she admires a lot of people's work, although it's not her style, like the German Expressionists. She was never part of that group, and she's sort of independent from it. She always felt that her art had to have an impact and that she wanted to be an advocate for the people. It had to have a message. Um, she very much admired Max Klinger, who I mentioned before. He was sort of a previous generation, but a great printmaker that inspired her to make prints in series, particularly. Um, and she very much admired the work of Ernst Barlach, who you know, was a close friend. And um, he, it was an exhibition of woodcuts by him that inspired her to take up the woodcut technique for her war series because um, she saw some prints in an exhibition and that's when she shifted from the doing lithographs to making woodcuts. So um, those are a couple, couple of artists. There are other artists too that maybe we don't really know the names of any, they're, you know, they've, they're not as well known today. But she was involved, uh, she was a co-founder of a women's art association that mentored and helped, young, supported younger artists, younger women artists. So she, you know, she was a member of a number of organizations that, um, you know, worked towards like maternal rights and, you know, supported sort of marginalized groups and things like that. So, hello, if you can please tell us a little bit about the, the statue, the Pieta in Berlin. Her Pieta in Berlin. Yes. If you can tell us a little bit about that statue. Say something about that. Yes. Okay. Actually, I might be able to show you a very bad photograph of it. There. <laughs> um, so some of you may have seen this in Berlin on the Unter den Linden in the Neue Wache, the new guard house that was um, built there in 1993. This, this sculpture was installed. Um, Helmut Kohl, I think, was in charge then and installed it. It was a little controversial at the time, but... Um, it's a, a large version of a smaller sculpture that she made. I mean, it's actually quite quite a big sculpture, but this is like more than life-size. Um, and when you walk into the room, it's a completely empty space with a skylight coming down. And so the light changes at different times of day, and it's very, very moving sculpture. So, you, you know, a lot of people make that a pilgrimage kind of to see that. And the Pieta, she said, you can call it a Pieta if you want, I call it a mother with a dead son. <laughs> I was going to say, Brenda, just to add to that, that the location of Neuwach was a military monument. Sorry, I was going to say that was an incredibly striking piece of artwork for anybody who stumbled on it, like I was lucky enough to stumble on it one night not knowing it was there. Hmm. Uh, the skylight is actually an open oculus, so mm -hmm. it rains only on that figure and snows mm -hmm. on that figure. Mm -hmm. And the building was a military, was a military monument or a military building for, I think, 75 or 100 years. Uh, and German uh, Nazi uh, troops would, would make a point of, oh, if you go to Berlin, you've got to pose in front of the building and get your picture taken. Right. So its militarism was sort okay. of wiped right Thank off. Thank you, Robin. She'd probably really be pleased about that. Yeah, it's on the east side, though, of the wall where the wall was. So as you go across from the west side in Berlin to the east side, that, you'll see it. And the East, East, East uh, German government kept it after World War II as a military location. Mm -hmm. It was only after reunification that it was kind of demilitarized and made into that beautiful thing. I had a quick question now that I've got a mic. Um, did she have any famous students? 
she was a teacher doing Did she anything, have anything with students? Any famous students or any notable student are, uh, who were pupils of, of Colbert's? Well, no, I, do, I don't know of any specific people that she taught that, uh, that I could tell you the names of right now, but she, didn't, she did have a legacy as a printmaker and influenced many people since. I mean, in our own collection, we have works by people like Betty Goodwin, Jack Nichols, many Canadian artists were influenced by her. Um, um, what's her name? Kaiserman Ross, many printmakers. Tyler Bright Hilton, <laughs> printmaker in our midst, who was influenced by Colwitz. Are there any happy drawings of her children? Good question. So her, the happy drawings and, and prints are of mothers with children. And if you had uh, a chance to see our first rotation, our first exhibition that was up from April to um, the end of September, we had some mothers with happy children. And those were women that she would have seen in her husband's practice again. But those are the only happy, happy images, really. Mother, but motherhood was a huge um, and very important uh, subject for her. She said once that her children were um, like her art. They were tasks that she had to you know, pay attention to. So she kind of equated almost her children with her art. But um, she was very, very attached to her two sons. And her son Hans lived into the 70s. He was a medical doctor. So it's his children that you still see around that are still most, I think, three of the four are still alive. Um, is is there portraits, or uh, I'm not aware of portraits of her husband, or I mean, was there, uh, there's a lot of her and her sons, is, right. it, is there her husband or beyond that extended family, or it's, it's fairly narrowly focused right. on her and her So sons. she didn't really do any group portraits, per se, but there are, her, son, her husband, sorry, was the model for many, not many, but some, images of parents, uh, mother and father, um, the, uh, the woodcut series, there, there's the parents, it's sort of modeled on her and Carl. And usually um, there's not a lot of interaction between the two. <laughs> they can, especially like you saw with the stone sculptures. At one point they were gonna be more joined together but they ended up being sort of very separate and kind of lost in their own individual grief. Um, so she doesn't use Carl as much, but then he may have been very busy with his medical practice too. But um, I think her connection with her sons was a lot stronger, was stronger. But her husband was very supportive. Her husband was very supportive. I mean, I should tell you one kind of funny story, which is that her father saw that she was very talented and um, supported her very much in her you know, education as an artist. Um, but he was quite upset when she got engaged to Carl Kolwitz because now she had chosen a different career, wife and mother. You can't, have, you can't be both. And that's basically the way he felt, and he sent her off to Munich to school and thought that maybe this would, you know, change her mind, but it didn't. <laughs> but then Carl was very, was very supportive and... Um, you know, and they were together for 50 years. So well, thank you very much. You've been a wonderful audience. <laughs> thank you.